0: Welcome to Uncharted Journeys. I'm your host, Kathy McKnight. So if like me, you've ever sat back and wondered, how did I get here, whether literally or figuratively in terms of your career or life in general, then you're in good company and have come to the right place. On Uncharted Journeys, you'll hear from amazing women about their straight and narrow, zigzaggy and somewhere in between paths to success. Today's guest is a leading innovation architect, author of 10 books, an in-demand speaker, world traveler, fellow adventurer and worthy scooter race opponent. I am so excited to have her on my show. Welcome, Carla Johnson.
1: Hey, thank you. I, and I forgot that that was our big competition, our scooters. Yeah. Cleveland
0: last year.
1: Yeah. 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 I'm not sure who won, but nobody died. So I think that's a successful race. I I think
0: that's a win and I'm going to take it as that. So tell our audience a little bit more about yourself and what exactly is an innovation architect?
1: You know, it's um, so. What I have done is, I have been a big fan of architecture all my career, and, and I'm sure we'll dig into how that came about. Um, but really, for the last twenty years, what I found is that I've worked at that intersection of the principles between architecture and designing and building things, and innovation about new ideas and creative thinking. So, really, the the title of an innovation architect is is a little bit about what happens if. Frank Lloyd Wright and Lady Gaga had a love child, and that's what you get. Carla Johnson, an innovation I architect. Love that. I <laughs> love wish that. I wish I could claim that <laughs> as my parents. <laughs> no offense, mom and dad. I, mean, I imagine the family dinners were Can really interesting.
0: <laughs> my goodness. Um, yeah. All right. So as I start all of my shows, uh, we'll do a quick rapid fire of a few questions, and then we'll get into the meat of it. So, when you were growing up, we all had ideas of what we wanted to be. What's the first career you remember wanting to do?
1: Oh, veterinarian! When I was a kid, I was crazy, animal crazy, particularly horses. And when I grew up, I just knew I wanted to be a vet because that's how I would be around animals all day long. I think, and interestingly, the next career I remember wanting to be was uh, uh, um, go into art, and I wanted to go to the Art Institute of Chicago. Ah. I didn't know what I would do for a career. That's just what I wanted to study. And my dad asked me, my dad was an accountant for GE turned family farmer. And he said, like, what do you do with that kind of degree? Like, how do you get a job? And I'm like, I, I hadn't thought that far down the line. So I, I ended up starting to study electrical engineering in college.
0: Oh, my goodness. That, okay, so I talk about zigzaggy routes. <laughs> that's um, that's amazing. <laughs>
1: And, and- I don't know how to show that in three dimensions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: that would be quite the mind map. But um, your dad's one to talk from accountant to farmer. Like he right. should have embraced the the variety and the spectrum that you were looking at. All right. So who was the first big influencer in your life?
1: Oh, I'd say my mom. Oh, nice. Uh, my mom and probably her father, my grandfather, because they were just avid, avid lovers of travel. And my grandfather had immigrated from Denmark to the U.S. when he was a mere 14 years old. He came with uh, two aunts to come stay with the family. And I think it's always the storytelling that he would do. And then how he planted that love of travel and just curiosity of the world that my mom had as, as she raised as five kids. I'm the youngest of five kids. Youngest of five. Okay. Yeah. Well, that says a lot actually. Um, <laughs> so
0: what song epitomizes your career path? And you can't say long and winding oh, road.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. I would actually say Jimmy Buffett's uh, changes in attitude, changes in latitude. Or maybe it's the other way you're right. on, Changes in latitude, changes in attitude. Because I, I think as we change, you know, uh, literally or metaphorically our latitude in life, it really changes how we look at what we do and what we want to do and probably our place in the world. All right. Which segues wonderfully
0: um, into the last quet- question, which is, uh, what would the street name for your career be if it was an actual road?
1: Oh, I would actually say that would be the long and winding road. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah.
0: Your career journey—I mean, clearly you've embraced new things since you were a little girl. You know, your the variety in your interests and wanting to be a vet, and then ending up somehow mm-hmm. in engineering. Which kudos to you. Um, so. Which I didn't actually
1: finish a degree in, which we can also get into.
0: Yeah. So tell me a little bit to how you ended up as like a world leading innovation architect.
1: Yeah, you bet. So I, um, like I said, I started university thinking I was going to be an electrical engineer because I'm, as the youngest of five, I had four older siblings who were all very left brained, uh, uh, military attorney, PhD engineer, software engineer, And then here I come. And like I said, I, you know, I thought art was my thing. And when my dad said, well, you know, like, how do you make a living at that? I grew up in a town of a thousand people. I went to a one room country school through sixth grade. My high school graduation class was 30 people. We didn't have the internet then. So in my small world, I'm like, I really have no clue how you make (laughs) how anybody makes a living at this. So, you know, I, I went the path that I had seen my siblings go. And it only took me a couple of years to figure out this is so not my thing. And one of the things that I've always loved and been good at was writing. And so I knew I wanted to go into something along that line, but I had an undergraduate professor who was an amazing storyteller when it came to history and really sparked my love in history. So I have an undergraduate degree in history and business, and then I have a graduate degree in in history and interestingly enough that has played out probably to one of the most beautiful influences in my career when i graduated uh, along the way i worked my way through college one of my first jobs was doing marketing for an architecture firm and they did a lot of historic preservation projects so it really married things that i loved about history about writing i didn't really know about marketing until i got the job to, to start to do it but it just felt like such a natural thing And my master's thesis uh, related to architecture, historic preservation. And it was the story of the Union Pacific Railroad train stations in Omaha, Nebraska. So I wrote this thesis and and everything about it was so, so amazing about how architecture influences ideas, communities, um, society, and all of these fascinating connections that I've never discovered before. And a publisher who specializes in railroad history found my thesis and asked if he could publish it as a book. And, and I call myself the accidental author in that way because <laughs> I love you know, that. Like, oh, how beautiful for somebody to come to you know to me and ask to publish something that I'd already written. So unlike a lot of authors, I didn't have that angst and stress and how am I going to get this published? You know, it was you know really a beautiful gift that fell in my lap. And right after that, I, um, my husband and I had taken a year off and we backpacked through South America. When we came back, we moved to Denver from Omaha and I got a job at, at uh, it was called Time Warner Telecom. So it was a division of, of Time Warner that focused on the tech side of, of it was B2B. Um, voice internet and data. So really getting into that tech boom during that right. time and very different from architecture. So I worked there for a couple of years and, and it was fascinating. I learned a lot of things and rounded out my marketing PR communications career that I hadn't done before in the architecture side. So we went through an IPO, we acquired two companies, we you know just exploded in growth. And I learned how to code. I learned how to, you know, create an intranet. I learned how to do things on, you know, on the web. You know, a lot like you've done, you know, just by experience, Kathy. And but it was during that time that I found I had a really hard time hiring freelance writers who could tell stories. And I got tired of paying a lot of money for work that that couldn't measure what I needed. So I thought, if I need this and can't find it, I'm sure there's other people who do too. So it was actually in 2001, right before the dot com bomb. I left that corporate job to start my own company. And then along the way, I I mean, I primarily focused on writing when I started, but because I I like to say I'm a a great project manager. Others might say I'm just a control freak (laughs) that I went into managing projects and and really expanding what I did because I could see the gap that people have there and, and what they didn't understand that they needed. But the beautiful thing, I think, working for myself for all these years is that as I got curious about something, I could... You know, I was in control of where my career went. So as I found things that interested me or things I wanted to learn about, that's how I would shift my direction. And I think I've always loved... Creativity and the idea of innovation, and it's something that just naturally and organically came out in the work that I do. But I would say it really started to go down this this road when Robert Rose and I wrote the book "Experiences: The Seventh Era of Marketing" in, in 2015. Because what people were saying is, I, I love the framework, but what I still really struggle with is how do I come up with an idea?
0: Yeah. And I would
1: say, to a certain degree, I'm probably an idea junkie. I, you know, I've got a million of them now. Getting them across the finish line is a whole other thing. <laughs> you know, as many people do. But so what I sought to do with the book that I wrote, Rethink Innovation, is to ask the question, is the ability to come up with great ideas that actually have an impact that you can execute something that can be learned? And the answer is yes. And so that's what I've been spending my time is as an innovation architect is teaching people essentially a framework from how they take inspiration, just like architects do. You think about some of the designs that people like Renzo Piano have done or you know, mm-hmm. Frank Geary. and it's absolutely drawn on inspiration from around them and how it all comes into a physical manifestation. So teaching that from the, from the perspective of, of innovation and how people can do that same thing.
0: It, like you said, we've had so many parallels. And you know what, people who argue the control freak versus PM they just don't get it. That's all I'm going to say is they just don't get it. You need right. that kind of um, passion for execution to to self-direct your destiny, which is exactly what you've done. And it's interesting because, you know, innovation architect is not something that you google and say, oh, i want to I want to grow up and be an innovation architect." Um and it's something that you've evolved into. So I'm wondering, so you t- you know, you talked about, the accidental author with, I love you. That's your next book. (laughs) It probably could be. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And the combination of creativity and and innovation and and being an idea junkie. Um, But can you think of something like there was there, where often we think back and there's, there's one defining moment where it was like, I, I've I've settled into my skin, I've I've found my groove, I'm in the right place. Did you have that kind of aha moment? I,
1: I think in a way I did, because I always felt like the odd duck in a room. Um, when you're, and I've read research on this where it says if you're a child in a family with odd numbered siblings, you know, you're the third, fifth, seventh, whatever. I, you know, feel sorry for the mom where it's the ninth, 11th and 13th or whatever. I've had three and you know, that's a lot. Um, but, but there's a different dynamic for that youngest child. If you're the youngest of an odd numbered family. Now I'm sure there's some other elements like the number of years space between kids and things like that, but we were five kids in a 10 year span. So we were, we're all pretty close. And that generally that odd numbered child is very different personality wise from the others. And generally the others are more left brain and the youngest is, is right brain. And like, for me, I always felt like the weirdo in, I mean, for a lot of reasons, but, but it was, it was because I think very, very differently from my very left brained siblings, but also my parents. I mean, my dad, he had, um, he'd been in the army, he went to college, got an accounting degree, worked for GE, realized that wasn't what he wanted to do, came back and, Um, took over the family farm, which I can't say at the time, you know, in his generation was a particularly creative profession. You know, you, you you knew what to do and you had to follow the formula. My mom was a kindergarten and first grade teacher. So she, she's a little more creative and she loves to spark that, you know, childlike kind of curiosity. And like I said, she was very influential in, in talking about history and travel and things like that. But I think Growing up and, and even in the jobs that I had, I found that I was trying to mold myself into what I thought I should be based on what my family was like, rather than who I really was. And I think it probably wasn't until after I was even um, many years into owning my own company. And my, my husband was always saying, like, look at what you like to do. Like, you like to write. Don't go with these you know, other formulas. And, and there was, when I read Daniel Pink's A Whole New Mind, How Right-Brainers Will Rule the World. Such a great book. I'm like, that's me. Like I now, I now get my value and why, why it matters. But I think there were so many times when I could go into a meeting and just sit and listen and I could connect the dots and figure things out. And I'm like, this is so easy. And I, like that, I could say it. I didn't understand the value of my ability to do that until I read that book. And I've, I've met Daniel Pink several times and heard him speak. And I, t- one time I brought my copy of A Whole New Mind for him to sign. I said, I keep buying this and giving it away. So I want one that you sign so that I, I don't give that one away. But I think it's it's an underappreciation or a lack of understanding for how critically important this type of thinking is. And especially with creativity and, and innovation and even how we define it and expect it to behave or where it lives in organizations. I think this this understanding that I now have after reading that book that was a huge aha and I've just been able to to grow it and uh, and I think finally articulate why and how that matters to organizations and I think that's why I feel like I'm really starting you know after all these years like really hitting my stride with understanding what I love what has that value and how I explain it?
0: Well, I mean, we're both so fortunate in be able to do what we love to do and get paid for it, right? And that we're actually, you know, no, we're not, you know, curing cancer, but yeah. we do make an impact. I mean, we do, the companies that we work with, there's a difference after we've worked with them. So- Talk to me a little bit about your what your current role is like. You know what what gets you jazzed and get and I don't know if you're a morning person or not, but what gets you up in the morning? And if it's a cup of <laughs> of coffee a or cappuccino, in, you know? <laughs> I totally get that. But like, what are some of the challenges and the compromises? Because we can't do just the stuff we like to do. Unfortunately, yeah. Um, those who have figured that magic out need to write a book. Yeah. Um,
1: but you know, what's it like? You know, I think the thing that really excites me the most is when somebody's come to a speech that I've given, a workshop that I've given, or I've worked with them as a consultant, and they come back and say, "Here's here's what we've done, change, do differently, think differently because of." something you said, taught us, or we heard, you know, I encourage them to do because one of my goals as I, as I dug into innovation and creative thinking is to teach a million people how to become innovative thinkers. And it sounds like a big ambitious goal, but I feel that there is such a hunger for this, especially right now in the world that it's, it's one of those things that you can spark and it's, and it's just exploding. And so when people come back to me, like I talked to a guy a couple of weeks ago, he had come to a two day workshop that I did on, on my five step process for my book. And he said, I just want to tell you that we have done this with our clients and we're getting better results faster that have a bigger impact than we did before. So, so like, that's why I do the thing is because it, it really excites me to see the impact that people have. And and there was another woman who was in that workshop and she said, now every month they have specific exercises where people in, it's a marketing agency. Everybody in the agency has an assignment. Like you get, you know, an afternoon, a morning, four hours off one day a month for you to go out and explore, to be curious, to do something different that you wouldn't normally do. And then come back and report back. And how can you start to tie that into your work? And I think, one of the things that crushes people's soul is that they feel that there's a disconnect between who they are and how they're allowed or how they're given permission or take permission to show up at work every day and i think the more that i can teach them that that space should be smaller and smaller and smaller and when it you know becomes the same thing they actually do better work that makes them feel happier that, that delivers better results. You know, so the company's happier, they're happier as a person and, and they really feel like they're showing up as, as who they are. And I think there's too many people every day who show up and think, okay, well, I'll put that part of me aside and now I'll show up like I'm supposed to. And, and it's we see it with people's exhaustion, with people's overwhelm, not having that space to be who you are, to you know, experience the world, to do different things, to have a creative expression, is really hurting everything about the work that we have going on around us now.
0: Yeah, and you know, you talk about that that room to breathe and the room to grow and and to think outside of what you do and be encouraged to do that. Um, so you're a mama three, you're an author. Your your own business leader. Um, You speak at a bunch of different conferences. I see you all over the place. (laughs) What are some of the challenges and compromises? Not just today, because I mean, I'm not saying I'm not saying the c word. Our world has changed so much over the last two years, but we've changed as women. We've really, you know, the careers that we're pursuing and the things that we're doing they weren't being done in the concentration that they were, that they are now, you know, there's, there's nothing Mm -hmm. stopping us, but we're still bumping into different challenges and compromises. And are you still like, what are you seeing in that today? Like, are there, are there still things that you're like, oh,
1: if only. Yeah, I I think it's, I think it's the, I think it's two-sided. I think one is there, as we know, there isn't enough diversity in companies across the board and diversity of opinions. But I also, and this can be, it was hard for me to hear and realize, but I think women don't ask for enough. And and I'll give you an example. Like I've done programming for events. Rarely ever have I ever had a man tell me no. But I'll be honest, it's really hard to get a woman to even respond most times. And if if we are going to change this dynamic, we as women have a responsibility to show up. And to believe in herself, or help lift up somebody else. And it's not just women. I mean, you know, there's, there's two sides to the coin. But I think part of what I see consistently is women being afraid to ask for more. And I think I learned how important this was from a colleague named Dia Bondi. And she, she's a fascinating woman and she has, she took, um, I think about every seven years or so she takes sort of a sabbatical year, like works less and digs into something she's always been curious about. Well, she went to auctioneering school a number of years ago, only she's from California, only woman in auctioneering school in Oklahoma and it's the big, you know, the full ten gallon right. hats, you know, the big dinner plate belt buckles, and here's little Dia showing up from California. And and learning literally how to ask for things like an auctioneer because what does an auctioneer do? They keep asking. It's more and more and more and more. And her ability to take that mentality into the work that we do every day and what I've learned from her. And she has her own, you know, formula about how we get comfortable with the uncomfortableness of asking for more and more, whatever that more is. And I think many times what I learned is asking for more doesn't mean putting more on my plate. It may be asking for more help, asking for more free time, asking for more you know space to do the work that that I want to do. And so, sometimes it's asking for myself. But I think that's that's a big thing that really has made a difference. Like you said, I mean, lots of parents are, are very busy, and, and women many times are the primary you know housekeepers or. Uh, children, primary caregivers. And, but I think we do have an opportunity of your space that we don't even ask of for ourselves. Like I, I talk about how one of my greatest learnings as a parent was walking someplace with my kids when they were little, because when you're a grown-up, like you start here and you have a destination and that's where you're going. Right. But when you're a kid, it's like, oh my gosh, look at these ants and what they're doing in the sidewalk. and And you just are forced to go you know, unless you want to, you know, otherwise it makes you a crazy person. And I think taking advantage and, and looking for those things and asking yourself, where do I have spaces in the day that can help me be more observant, that can help me look at what's going on and ask myself some questions. Is this what I want? Um, and if I don't, how do I change it? I think that's really important. Yeah.
0: I, I love that. The, you know, kids are uh, a continual source of education. Um, some Absolutely. of the best insights and um, just truths that come out of it. And when you talk about going for a walk with your kids, it takes me back to, um, you know, the old school Saturday comics, Family circo- Circus, yes. Billy, <laughs> when mom called Billy in from the yard and it's like, where have you been? I called you in 15 minutes ago. He's like, well, I came straight here. But meanwhile, you know, he's gone up the tree and he's gone around the block and he's, you know, like <laughs> dog and yeah. So I think that's, um, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, it, and it's, it's exactly that. It's not that you're always asking for things or for more, but sometimes it's just asking so that you can find that balance. Yeah. Um, you know, I usually ask, you know, great piece of advice, life, career, happiness. I think, you know, asking for help when you need it, asking for what you want, asking for what you need. Great advice. Anything else? Any other, you know, tidbits from a, that you'd like to share?
1: You know what? And I think this is something that I'm always working on, but it's so important. And again, under underrated and underappreciated is sleep. And I think we prioritize everything but sleep. And this is something that I'm I'm really learning as I get more and more sleep. I'm like wow, the world looks completely different. And some people may say, I don't have time for sleep or I'll sleep when I'm dead or you don't understand my schedule. It's a matter of priorities. And and when you do prioritize sleep and you get more sleep, like I feel like a whole new person and I'm only up to averaging seven hours a night. Like so, I mean, because I ran on four and five hours a night yeah. for years yes. and you can't properly function, think, do anything when it's like that. And, and I can guarantee as, as I prioritize, there's a whole lot of junk in my day that I've gotten rid of yeah. to make time for this. Yeah, yeah.
0: That's amazing. Um, sleep is definitely underrated. Um, like you, I, you know, it was almost a, a point of pride where it's like, oh yeah, you know what? Five, six hours. I'm good to go. I worked with an individual who literally boasted that he slept three hours a night. I'm like, you've got three kids, you're running a business and you're Sleeping three hours a night, you're not doing anybody anything. And,
1: and, and it was yeah, exactly. And and it was also a learning from my kids. Like my kids have great sleep habits. Yeah, you know they're tired, they just go to bed. I know, is that amazing? Been, <laughs> yeah, since they were little, and you know, it, they don't they don't feel this urge to keep doing yeah. and going and going. And because they they somehow I taught them, my husband and I taught them how to care for themselves. But it's a uh, you know, it was uh, well. You need to do that, but I've got things to do. Yes, and really looking. At yeah, them, do I? Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Speaking of sleep, I was on a red eye last night. So after we talk, that's where I'm going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> um. Exactly. So thank you so much, Carla. This has just been fantastic. I can't wait to see you again and, and take on another scooter challenge.
1: Um, Absolutely. That's so fun. Where can the audience find you? My website is carlajohnson.co. There's no M. It's Carla with a C. I say Carla because CO stands for the great state of Colorado where I live. Um, that's the best place. You can always connect with me on LinkedIn. I love it. If you've heard me like on Kathy's podcast, connect with me on LinkedIn and, and let me know, because again, I'd love to hear if there's something that I talked about that resonated with people. Well, fantastic. Thank you
0: so much. Um, thank you for joining me. This has been amazing. Um, I love talking with you, and I can't wait until we're. I'm. I'm hoping <laughs> was it's not time. just content marketing world, which is until September. I'm hoping it. I our, know. Our I hope we get to see each other again. I'll try and find a way to get yeah. to Denver. Um, but thank you again. And thanks to our listeners uh, for listening to the Uncharited Journeys uh, with me, your host, Kathy McKnight. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Carla and hearing about her amazing journey. Um, if you're keen to hear more amazing stories from amazing women, uh, join me next week when I will be speaking with Niha Sempat, who is the CEO of Content Stack and a serial entrepreneur. Um, and she's going to share with us some of her adventures and things that she's done over her amazing career. Um, as always, you can head over to UnchartedJourneys.net uh, to sign up for announcements and and uh, follow our little uh, podcast here, as well as check out the links and resources in the show notes. So, thank you again for listening, and see you next time. And until then, enjoy the journey. I took- all the whole year All of the faces and all of the places.